All right. Uh, as we found out last week, that's where I just picked up, picked up from, we learned that we are introduced into a whole new section, chapter 4, 5, and 6. After Paul describing our position in Christ, he begins to talk about our practice, what it means to actually follow Christ. And so we have verse 1, Therefore, I, a prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk. That means to live. Conduct your lives now. Now that you have new life in Christ, that means you take on different values. You begin to take on God's values, Christ's values, His righteousness. And so that's where Paul's concern now turns to, is how we live and how we walk, being followers of Christ, being in Christ. And chapters 4, 5, and 6 reveals how God, the Father, wants His children to walk, to behave themselves. And now, I want to point out something. As I read this, you have to be a Christian for so many years, you forget that these values contradict by nature. These values are in contradiction to the culture and society around us. If we take on the values of God, the values of Christ, there's a contradiction here with how I was brought up. Okay? Particularly if I was raised in a non-Christian home, but even sometimes in a Christian home. Christ's values are different from the world and they're different from my natural tendency. Let me give some examples of this. Okay? For example, our culture celebrates individualism. Individual who starts from the bottom and works his way up to the top. However, God celebrates his son who started at the top and worked his way down to earth to serve and to save that which was lost. Our culture celebrates freedom. And yet Jesus tells us, quote, whoever wishes to be great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. Our culture celebrates equality, yet Paul tells us to regard others as more important than ourselves. I wanted to show you up front that the values of Christ are different than the values of this world, different than the values of this culture. They're even different than the values of my own sin nature. Does that make sense? So when we talk about the unity of the church, we're talking about taking on, for that unity to take place, for that unity to become a reality, we have to take on certain virtues and values that come from heaven itself that Christ models for us, for the unity of the body of Christ to become a reality. Okay? So you see in our passage this morning, we're told the opposite of what many of us have been taught growing up. We've been taught to pull up your own bootstraps. But when it comes in the context of the church and following Christ, it's not that. In other words, one way of saying this is that these verses, 2 through 6, go against the grain of our own thinking and other areas of life. Against the grain of our culture. But then again, according to verse 1, we are called to live in a manner worthy of the gospel which means worthy of Christ, who is the gospel. It's to take on the same values and the same virtues that he has. It's in actuality to put on the righteousness of Christ. Actually, later on in chapter 4, verse 17, we're going to be told to put off and put on. Put off the old way, put off the old virtues, put off the old values, and replace them with Christ. Put off the old man and replace it with the righteousness of Christ. How he lived the example to us. And we learned this morning, this morning's passage, that one of these values that God holds so dear 
that's on the center of his heart is the unity of his children. That they walk in unity. So let's stand together and read verses 2 through 6 this morning. Just these verses this morning. In fact, we'll just read 1 through 6. The Ephesians chapter 4, our text this morning. Paul with great passion, Paul with a great sense of urgency, says, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner, in a way that is equal with your position, in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. May God bless the reading of his word. You may sit down. Now, before we look at our passage this morning, I want to refresh our memories of one of the most fundamental truths that this passage is built on, and it's the truth that Christ brings us together. Now, a lot of churches get together for other reasons. Christ might be a part of the reason, or Christ might not be any part of the reason. Sometimes churches get together to be entertained because they like the music. Some churches get together because they want people want to get have therapy. They want to be told that they're okay. They want to have a bigger and better life. There's all sorts of reasons why churches get together, but God's people get together because they want to center around Christ. Our songs center around Christ. Our prayers center around Christ. The preaching centers around Christ. And the only way we know how to do that is center it on His Word. A lot of churches aren't like that. Look at chapter 2, verse 13. It's Christ who brings us together. Listen to this. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off have brought, been brought near by the blood of Christ. Look at verse 16. It might reconcile the both of the one body to God through the cross by having put to death the enmity. He reconciles us. He brings us together. He is the one that is our peace. All I'm doing right now is setting the context. How many of us know each other for 20 years? How many of us know each other for five years? For most of us, it's just a couple of years. Maybe for a couple of us, it's for months. Who is the one? What brings us together? Who is the centrality of our worship and therefore our fellowship? Christ. That's why we center on Him when we worship. That's why He's the center of our fellowship. He wants us to be unified in the truth. The truth of Christ. Let's develop this just a, a moment more in chapter 4. Look at 13 and 14. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of who? The Son of God. A mature man to the measure of the stature which belongs to who? The fullness of Christ. He wants us to be unified in the truth. He wants us to grow up together in the truth. He wants us to mature together. He wants us to be filled with Christ and his love together. However, in order for this to happen, we have to put forth effort in the area of unity. 
Not that we create it, but that we maintain it. After all, as Christ has brought us together, it's the Holy Spirit who indwells us to waken us up to Christ. It is the Holy Spirit who seals us. It's the Holy Spirit that gives us gifts for the rest of the body. Are you getting the picture? I say that because the number one fundamental truth that undergirds this passage of Scripture, that undergirds chapter 4, 5, and 6, is the truth that Christ brings us together. So when you come on a Sunday morning, it's for Christ. When you don't come on Sundays, we got problems. You see the picture? So here's the question we all need to ask our own hearts and our own minds. Why do I come on a Sunday morning? Why? Hopefully, the answer is because I've been walking with Jesus all week, and I want to be on Sunday morning with other people who are also pursuing Christ during the week. Because I know on Sunday morning, he's going to be exalted. He's going to be elevated. In song and prayer and preaching and listening. And in our fellowship afterwards. Listen, listen. The church does not naturally drift towards unity. We're going to see that in just a minute. It's not a natural thing. What is natural for me is selfishness, self-advancement, and self-exaltation. The worldly values... And that's where my sin nature wants to pull me all the time. Those things which are detrimental and self-destructive for the church. And therefore, we must be intentional and purposeful when we come together. We must intentionally put forth effort for the sake of maintaining the unity which has been created by Christ himself and made alive by the work of the Spirit in our lives. So I want us to look at a couple things this morning in our passage. Having looked at that fundamental truth that Christ is one who brings us together, uh, I want us to look at the Christ-like virtues in verses 2 and 3. And then I want to look at the basis of unity, 4, 5, and 6. Two simple points. Point number one, the virtues of Christian unity. The virtues of Christian unity. I think the first four are like the attitudes, the internal attitudes we must have for unity to become a reality. And the fourth one is almost like an action. It comes from the word diligent, to put forth a lot of effort. I want to separate that one out from the first four. So let's look at the first one. The first virtue is humility. Oh my goodness. Let's just look at the next one too. Uh, gentleness. Oh my, patience. Oh, this is tearing me up. Uh, these are things you don't hear the world really talking about very much when they talk about unity, okay? Let's begin with the first one, humility. It begins with a proper awareness of oneself, which comes from the Word of God. A proper awareness of oneself. When I understand what, how God defines me, what God thinks of me, I need to look at myself the way God looks at me. And it begins with a biblical understanding of my own sinfulness. Humility starts right there. That's day one of humility. When God has opened up your eyes, to see yourself the way he sees you. And to see that you're wretched. To see that all by yourself, without him, without Christ, you wallow in your own sinfulness. You are deserving of God's wrath and God's judgment. That is a healthy beginning. It's the beginning of a healthy self-assessment. The world wouldn't say that at all. 
There'd be preachers out there that wouldn't preach that at all. That's clearly what the Bible teaches us. This is the beginning of a proper awareness of oneself. It begins with a biblical understanding, a biblical understanding of one's own sinfulness. A humble person does not measure himself or herself with other people. It doesn't look out there and target people and go, oh, I'm different than them, I'm better than that person, that person, that was a little bit better than me. It doesn't operate on this level. This is not where biblical self-assessment comes from, where biblical proper awareness comes from. It comes from comparing ourselves to Christ in his word. He's the standard. And at that point, we utterly fail. Amen? Proper awareness of oneself does not come from comparing ourselves with others. Like the Pharisee, write this down. Like the Pharisee in Luke chapter 18. Let me read this. You're familiar with the story. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying to himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other people. I'm not a swindler. I'm not like that person over there who's unjust. I'm not an adulterer like that man or that woman over there or even like this tax collector. Oh God, I fast twice a week. I pay tithes. I give consistently all that I get. Then the scene changes to the tax collector. Standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breath, saying, God, be merciful to me. Jesus says, I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. See, the prideful person goes about exalting themselves. A humble person trusts Christ to exalt them at the proper time. And if you're never exalted on earth, you'll be exalted when Jesus comes again. Does that make sense? We don't, we're freed up from having to have to do that or wanting to have to do that. To wanting to look good before others. Wanting to look spiritual before others. We all want to do that. The humble person has a proper awareness of himself or herself. They are like the tax gatherer. They are not like the person in 1 John 1, 8 1, 10 who says they have no sin. They are like the person of 1 John 1, 9 who confesses their sin. I like that. 8, 9, and 10. 1 John 1, 8, you say you have not sinned. Verse 10, you say, you say you have no sin. In between, you confess your sin. A spiritual person lives a life of confession. Not the Roman Catholic confession. You know what I mean. They're, they're constantly, during the week, in prayer, before the throne of grace, because of Christ confessing their sin before him. A, a, a spiritual person, a humble person, desires to become more sensitive to their own sinfulness. And that is a part of Christian maturity. <coughs> Excuse me. It's becoming more aware. The more you're in God's Word, the more aware are you, are, are you of your own sinfulness, your own sinful tendencies, your own sinful desires, your sinful motives. May that be part of our prayers. God, make me more sensitive to sinfulness in my life. I want you. I love when you expose it. And I know when you do that, Father, it's because you love me. And your goal for me is to be conformed to the image of Christ. And that's part of the process, God, is you showing me my own sinfulness. Maybe in how I'm treating my wife or my husband. Maybe it's a relationship with somebody at work. Maybe it's with one of my children. 
Maybe it's my thought life. That is part of the process. He grows sensitive to his own sin. He understands, as Paul does, according to 2 Corinthians 3 5, that their inadequacy, I mean, excuse me, that their adequacy and their effectiveness comes from God. Paul recognizes that. 2 Corinthians 3 5. Therefore, as Romans 12 3, they do not think more highly of themselves as, as we're prone to do. You see, that's why Paul says, do not think more highly of yourselves than you ought to. Why would he say that? Because he knows that's our tendency of the sin nature is that it's very natural for us to want to think more highly of ourselves than I ought to. I want to look, Pastor Jim wants to look good before you. I want you to think that I'm perfect so that when you're preaching, that you're going to listen to me. But if you're really in the Word, you're going to know Pastor Jim's not perfect whatsoever. Right? What you need to know about Pastor Jim, what we need to know about one another is that we all desire to live godly. We're all moving forward in that area. We're talking about the godliness of Christ. We want that. It's a desire. We do want to pursue holiness. But it's not the holiness or the righteousness that gets us to heaven. That's not it. When, our, when we move forward, we're going to stumble and fall, but we're with one another doing it together so that we're next to the person who falls, we're able to lift them up. Are you getting the picture? All because of Christ. One of the dangers of being part of a body of believers is we begin to think more highly of ourselves than we ought to. For example, I am more important than him or her. When you think about the body of believers, you think about a church, you think about Grace Community Church. Sometimes we can fall into that trap of thinking, I am more, I'm the preacher, I'm the, this church, I, I preach, I'm more important than you are. I don't think God wants me to think that one bit. Besides, He gave me the gift. Besides, I can disqualify myself. Are you getting the picture? I do a lot for this church. And because I do more than so and so, because my function is more public than others, then I'm more meaningful to the church than other people. But even that kind of thinking will even become more dangerous than it already is when left unchecked, it evolves into something like this. Therefore, I should have more to say. I should have more pull and more influence in the church because of my position. After all, I, I do more than other people. Right? I'm more spiritual. That's, that's this arrogance, this pride. They even go further into this. I have a dream or an ideal of what the Christian community, what Grace Community Church can look like or should look like. And therefore, because I'm a spiritual one, I need to tell them, so you go the direction I want you to go. Of course, I just painted a simple scenario, didn't I? Didn't I? I got a rather lengthy reading from a book called Life Together by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And I really want you to listen to this. It's in regard to unity and having dreams or visions of the way we think the church should be. And actually what he does is he rebukes that kind of thing. Not an ideal, but a divine reality. That's the subheading. Listen to these words. Innumerable times, a whole Christian community has broken down because it has sprung from a wish dream, vision, 
The serious Christian set down for the first time in a Christian community is likely to bring with him a very different idea of what Christian life together should look like. And then try to realize it. Here's what I think it should look like, and here I'm going to push us to realize this. But God's grace speedily shatters such dreams, such thinking. Just as surely as God desires to lead us to a knowledge of genuine Christian fellowship, God desires for us that genuine Christian fellowship, so surely we must we be overwhelmed by a great disillusionment with others, with Christians in general. I got this great ideal, but the reality is we're a bunch of, we're mess. We have problems, we have issues. By sheer grace, God will not permit us to live even for a brief period in a dream world. He does not abandon us to those rapturous experiences and lofty moods that come over us like a dream. God is not a God of the emotions, but the God of truth. Only that fellowship which faces such disillusionment the reality that we're all sinful, okay, that we're, we're a mess, okay, saved, messes, okay? Only that fellowship with faith that faces such disillusionment with all its unhappy and ugly aspects begins to be what it should be in God's sight. In other words, the second space reality. We're all sinners united around Christ. Let's realize that. And not one of us God is going to give us a vision or a dream of how this church should be. So what happens is we come into this environment, we go to the church, and I come in and think, it ought to be this way. Then it kind of puts me one up on you, doesn't it? Let me be frank with y'all. The elders don't have a vision for this church. Unless we simply want to call it following Christ, being obedient to Him, being in His Word, and saying, hang on, with faithfulness to those couple simple principles, let's watch what God does. We're not going to come to you with a vision. We're not going to come to you with a dream. Let me go on. The sooner this shock of disillusionment comes to an individual, oh, we're a mess, okay? And to the community, the better for both. The more we come to this realization, the better for both. A community which cannot bear, cannot survive such a crisis which insists upon keeping its illusion when it should be shattered, permanently loses in that moment the promise of Christian community. In other words, Christian, we have this ideal of what the local church should be, what it should look like. And he's saying, don't bring those into the church and, and, and bear it over on the people because it's going to be shattered the moment somebody makes a mistake. The moment somebody says it's going to shatter your dreams. That's what he's saying. Let me go on. This rest is better than what you said. Every human wish dream that is injected into the Christian community, the local church, Grace Community Church, is a hindrance to genuine community. It must be banished if genuine community is to survive. He who loves his dream of a community more than the Christian community itself becomes a destroyer of the latter. Even though his personal intentions may be ever so honest and earnest and sacrificial, the man who fashions a visionary ideal of community demands that it be realized by God, by others, and by himself. 
I've got a vision for Grace Community Church. You want a pastor who comes to you and says that? And by golly, you better take, you better hold on to that vision. You better hold on to my dream. And I'm going to put it over you. Does that make sense? No, you hope you don't want that. You're not going to get that. He enters the community of Christians with his demands, sets up his own law, and judges the brethren and God himself accordingly, according to my vision for you. He stands out of it, a living reproach to all others in the circle of the brethren. He acts as if he is the creator of the Christian community, as if his dream binds men together. When things do not go his way, he calls the effort a failure. When his ideal picture is destroyed, he sees the community going to smash. So he becomes first an accuser of the brethren, what is not realized, and an accuser of God, and finally in the despair, accuser of himself. Those are powerful words, aren't they? Powerful. How often have we heard have a vision today? I beg you, where in the New Testament is any leader called to have a vision for the local church? It is not there. If it was there, I would bring you to it. If you find it, let me know and I will repent and recant. Oh, there's Proverbs 29, right? Without a vision, the people what? Perish. But you know what that Hebrew word vision is, is talking about? Revelation. Without the revelation of God, the people perish. You want to know the vision of God? Get into the Word of God. You know what his vision is? Saving sinners and seeing those sinners begin to love each other with the love of Christ, knowing that they're going to mess up now and then. That's Christian community. Being there when the, when the other person has fallen so you can pick them up. Now let's go on. So that's the humility that Paul is talking about. A humble person not only has a proper awareness of themselves that we just read, but they have a proper awareness of God, specifically God's grace. They know they're in the body of Christ purely by God's grace, which Paul spelled out in chapters 1, 2, and 3. And all those blessings that we have are because of Christ. This righteousness now, not mine, not mine. His righteousness becomes the standard. I'm proclaiming Christ's righteousness every time I preach. I hope like you and I strive like you to kind of measure up when I try with a life of confession because I don't no matter how hard I try. That's why the reformers coined this term simultaneously saint and sinners at the same time. I am simultaneously a sinner and a saint. I still a man of flesh. I still sin, but I am a child of God saved by grace. That's why now, Romans 8.1, after Paul describing, he discovered still as a believer that sin, the principle of sin dwells, dwells in him. After saying, wretched man that I am, who's going to deliver me from the body of this death? He says, now, right now, this present time, where I see this principle of sin still dwelling in me, now, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So as a child of God, even though I stumble in sin, I stand not condemned, but loved. What amazing grace. Amazing grace. So this unity begins with, with this humility. By the way, there is, no, there is no unity without humility. Let me just say that again. There is no unity without humility. 
But humility is not only a proper awareness of oneself, which comes from Scripture, but a proper awareness of God and who He is and what He's done for you in Christ. Finally, it is thirdly, this humility, this humbleness, is a proper awareness of others. And all you need to do is go a couple of pages in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, look at this. Therefore, verse 1, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Verse 3, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility, there it is, humility of mind, with a humble attitude, regard one another as equals. No, it doesn't say that. It doesn't say regard you as equal. It's to regard you as more important than me. You are more important than Pastor Jim. I, I gotta I got really take that on. I gotta milk that in my soul, so to speak. That's what Christ wants. It's, this is his church. He's the foundation of it, so he tells us our values. And in, 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 in unity is one of those precious values to our Lord. But this unity, this unity doesn't come without humility. And that humility extends to one another. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. And you know what he does? Verses 5 through 11. He says, follow your leader, Jesus. He gives the premier example, Christ himself. So here you have the head of the church. Demanding that his body be unified. And that the virtue, the number one virtue of that is humility. And then he says, I've been an example to you. Follow your leader. And there's no greater example of humility than Christ coming off the throne of heaven and coming to earth, taking on a form of man, to be rejected by men, to save our souls. That gets us to the next one, gentleness, which will be a lot faster. Gentleness, go back to our text. With all humility and gentleness, the word simply means meekness, power under control or self-control. That's what the word means. Gentle. It doesn't mean I'm weak. It doesn't mean you're powerless, having no power, but that your power is under control. In Matthew eleven twenty nine, 29, Jesus described it having a meek and lowly heart. Yet he drove out the money changers out of the temple. But as I was thinking about this, I, 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 I thought about being gentle, not necessarily with my hands, though it applies with my feet, but what about the words that I use? Words are powerful, aren't they? Go to James chapter 3 for a moment. James talks about words. He talks about the tongue which produces words. And how powerful they can destroy or they can encourage and build up. He's talking about how powerful words are. And so all I did was talk about what it means to be to be gentle with my words so that they build up instead of tear down. And I realized the tongue is like a fire, as James says. And it's hard to keep that under control. Verse 6, the tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members, is that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell. Strong, strong language there. 
For every species of beasts and birds and reptiles and creatures of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by the human race. But no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. Listen to that. He's talking about words. Right? The words that come from our mouths. Verse 9. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. He's saying, look at the inconsistency. Look at the hypocrisy. I prayed at night. The next day I go and swear out somebody at work. I go to church, but then on my way to McDonald's through the line, I bless out the lady who's trying to take my order because she's impatient with me or she got it wrong. Or I go to a Walmart parking place and somebody cuts in front of me and I yell at them. Right? But meanwhile, I prayed this morning. I should know the rubber beats the road. That's what Jesus is talking about. Verse 10, from the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be this way. To be gentle with our, our words. When you talk to somebody, you got to realize your words have power in what you say. You can either encourage somebody and build them up, or you can tear them down just with your words. Wow. Gentleness. That's why, a little bit, let's go back to Ephesians. That's why a little bit later on in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29, we read this, Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification, according to the need of the moment. Think before you speak. That's what I said. Think before you speak. Understand where that person is coming from. Understand them before you address them, before you talk with them. So that we'll give what? Grace to those who hear. The next one is patience. Oh, we were right a few minutes late this morning and we're on our way. You know, on the north on Salisbury Concord Road, it's 55 miles an hour that you want around a turn. It's basically 45. We got behind this person. 35 miles an hour. I'm already running late. And after about 10 seconds, it dawned on me. I looked at Sarah and we all I said, I said, guess what? One of the words we passed this morning is patience. God's got a sense of humor. I need it right now. After a couple miles, they eventually turned off. I was sitting going, wow. But literally, the word means long-suffering. The ability to endure discomfort without fighting back. The ability to endure discomfort without fighting back. This virtue, by the way, is associated with love in 1 Corinthians 13. Love is what? First love. Love is patient. So get this. If you're not patient, you're not being what? Loving. So as soon as I started feeling impatience in my heart, I wasn't loving what I would have considered if he's in a car in front of me, my neighbor. You ever thought about that, by the way? When you're driving, a neighbor is anyone who is around you. It could be someone in the car next to you or behind you or in front of you. It could be someone at line at Walmart. Think of applying loving your neighbor that way. Anyone who comes across your path, whether they're in a car or at a Walmart or whatever, this is living Jesus for others. Okay, let's go on. This is this patience. This is a tough one. As they say, don't pray for patience. <laughs> 
It's God will answer that prayer. And usually through a trial or something like that. Putting a driver in front of you is going 35 or 55. Anyway. Not only is it associated with patience, it's associated with love in 1 Corinthians 13. It's also associated with the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5 22. Therefore, it's necessary for unity. Where there is no patience, where there's no humility, where there's no gentleness, there is no unity. Right? That's what Paul's saying here. Be patient when someone says something out of turn. Or someone tells you something when they really don't understand where you're coming from. When you're misunderstood. And this really leads to the next one, number four, tolerance. Where I like the better rendering is to forbear, to bear each other in love. To bear each other. <clears throat> it says showing tolerance or forbearance to one another in reference to love. In love. It's a God, got to be agape love. It means to take the hit and continue to love that person. To take the hit, but to continue to love them. Who do you think did this? Jesus. This gentleness, this patience, this tolerance, this humility, these are virtues. These are values that are antithetical from our society and our culture. This is not normal thinking. But this is God's thinking. You see, God's thinking is not everyday normal thinking. Take the hit and continue to love that person no matter what. It's like 1 Peter 4.8, love covers a multitude of sins. Ah. But he hurt me. Take it. Love him back. Love him back. We create opportunities with our children at times to enforce that one. It doesn't mean we justify or making excuses, but we keep that person's sins from becoming broadcast. What do we tend to do? Danita? What Dorothy did to me yesterday, you wouldn't believe what she did to me. It hurt me deeply. And so I start broadcasting it. Right? That's what we tend to do. But no, we cover it. That means we don't talk to others about so-and-so's sin. If that person hurt me, I'm not going to go tell somebody else that that person hurt me. You know what's going to happen? They're going to take on that same offense. And it's going to spread the body. Now I have five or ten people in the, at, at Grace Community Church faking and looking poorly upon my wife. Right? Besides, there's nothing there. I was just an illustration. I, I hesitate to use anybody else. And the guys are like, you were just not wise, Pastor. You were just not wise. You made up somebody. Wait till I get home. Let you go. If someone hurts you, don't go around telling others about it. Live out Ephesians 4.32 that says, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Humility, gentleness, patience, tolerance, and forbearance are all necessary for unity in the body of Christ. Now, why would Paul talk about this here? Because we're sinners. You're going to make a mistake. Your elders are going to make mistakes. The deacons are going to make mistakes. Husbands, wives, children are going to blow it. Not just mistakes. We're going to sin now and then. Right? That's why it's here. Praise God! Enjoy. Enjoy grace. 
Just we have a problem doing that, don't we? It's not that we want to take advantage of the grace. We want to need to walk in it because we know as the journey continues on, as God is working on us and setting us apart, we're going to stumble and fall. But part of that grace is others around us being there to pick us up and to love on us through the process of a messy Christian walk. Then here's the, the diligence part. Here's the action. Those are like four attitudes for humility. And now verse 3, being diligent to preserve the unity. Notice the word preserve, which means maintain, maintain that which Christ has already done. He's brought us together. He's the one who created the unity. You've been brought here by the blood of Christ, 2.13. He's made two and one new man, two men to one new man, establishing peace. So he's established it. The Spirit dwells us. So it's there. Now it's our responsibility to maintain it. But it doesn't happen without effort. It's like Dorothy and I in our pre-marital counseling, Pastor Grace, her pastor up in New York. I love the name, Pastor Grace. In pre-marital counseling, it simply said, there's a four-letter word you're going to need in your marriage. W-O-R-K. You're always going to have to work at it. That means the word diligence. Constantly putting forth Effort, Church, Grace Community Church, we're constantly going to be needing to put forth effort for the sake of unity. It's, we don't naturally drift there. We've got to be consciously aware that this is what our Savior wants. He's the Lord of the church. This is what He wants. This is what we're told to maintain. And it has to come with these certain virtues, these, these attitudes of humility gentleness, patience, and tolerance with one another as we all work together towards unity, building up the church, building up one another, unified in Christ, making every effort. In order to have meaningful relationships, you've you got to work at it. You've got to. It's just, there's not an option. Ask another family over for dinner in the body here. Open up your home. Get to know each other. Come to fellowships. The church is not a place just to come one hour a week. Now, I'm a realist. Okay? Some people are going to be more attracted to certain personality types than others. I get all that. You still got to work at it. And you might have to work harder at being fellowship with this person than this person. But here's the question. Is it Christ worth it? Now, when you think of it that way, fellowship is an act of worship. But let's sink in. We not only worship for an hour and 15 minutes, depending on the preacher, an hour and 30 minutes on a Sunday morning. Worship is throughout the week. Worship is walking in the truths of God's Word. Worship, therefore, becomes also being diligent and building relationships on this level with one another to maintain what God has created. And then look at 4, 5, and 6. We'll close with this. It's going very, very patient. And I'm just going to wrap this up. Look at the Trinity here. One Spirit, one Lord, one God and Father. 4, 5, and 6. Here's what I think Paul is doing here. He's talking about the unity of the body. And what he does, he pulls out the greatest example he could ever find. The example of all eternity. The perfect example. The Godhead, the Trinity. 
He's not focusing on the, the different responsibilities of the Son, Father, Spirit. He's treating them as one. He's saying, church body, here's your example. God himself. Here's the bar. Here's the standard. The, this the zenith of all standards. You don't get any higher than this. It's God himself. And that's why I say, when we strive in our unity one with another, and be unified in our fellowship, we're talking about an act of worship. But we're modeling God himself. So at verse 4, we have the same spirit, same hope. The same hope is the coming of Jesus Christ. Is everybody in this room looking for the second coming of Christ? Amen. Amen. That unifies us. And right now, until then, we all want to be like Christ. We want to be ready for his coming. So part of, a large part of our fellowship is encouraging one another to be ready, to get ready for when Christ comes. Verse 5, we have the same Lord. One faith refers to the truths of scriptures, I believe. Just like Jude, verse 3. Continuing for the faith once for all delivered unto the saints. The faith, the body of truths. We have one Lord, one faith, one body of truth of scriptures. One baptism. And I believe because this follows Christ, the baptism is believer's baptism. Not the baptism of the Spirit, where he had had this baptism following the Holy Spirit. This is after Christ, I believe it's believer's baptism. We all have been baptized and identified with Christ. We have made that public profession of faith where Jesus Christ is our Lord and Savior. We have that in common, amen? Uh oh, wow, wait a minute. That was not convincing. Did that? Right? Jesus is Savior and also more as the preciousness of water baptism. And then verse 6. This all with all comprehensiveness, we have one Father who is over all. Reminds me of Romans 11 36. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. The unity of the church is God's will for its people. It's God's will for Grace Community Church. But it won't happen without the attitude of humility and patience and forbearance. Without working at it without being diligent. May God bless us with this good stuff.